John 20, I'm going to read verses 19 to 29. John 20, 19 to 29. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad that they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his, in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although, although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that we would be counted among those who are blessed. Though we haven't seen you in the flesh, we haven't seen you physically but we believe in you and we believe in your resurrection, Lord Jesus. I pray that we would be blessed today. Father, I pray that the resurrection of your son this morning would not just be a distant thought or, or something we think about here and there. It wouldn't be something out there in the space somewhere, but it'd be something close at hand. It'd be something that is at the forefront of our thinking and our affections and our heart. It'd be something that would affect and change the way that we live today and tomorrow and this next year and the next 10 years and the next 20 years. God, may we be shaped and formed by the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. I pray this in his glorious name. Amen. This morning, very early, I was lying in bed, or, uh, lying, uh, just had woken up and ready to get up. And, and I was reminded of earlier here in John chapter 20, it says at the very beginning of the chapter that on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, um, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and, and, and the stone had been rolled away and she was shocked and she ran to tell Peter and John. But I was thinking as I was lying there about ready to get up and get my day going, it was dark it was early, and I was just kind of rustling around that there was a day, 2,000 years ago, roughly, when Jesus' dead corpse did that, right? It was dark, first day of the week, Sunday, and all of a sudden, he hadn't been moving since Friday, right? He on, died on Friday, rested on Saturday, and early Sunday morning, all of a sudden, his body started to move, and he rose. And since then, everything has changed. 
the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. It gives us hope. It gives us eternal life. It gives us brand new life. We are born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. One of my favorite passages that point to the resurrection of, points to the resurrection of Christ is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. I think I might have taught on it last, last year at Easter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says things like this, just pointing to the necessity of the resurrection and how it changes everything, how it shapes everything, how it defines everything for the Christian. He says, if Jesus hasn't been raised, your faith is empty, it's vain, it's futile. If Jesus hasn't been raised, he says, you are still in your sins. He says elsewhere, if Jesus hasn't been raised and therefore we only have hope in this life, we are of all people on the entire face of the earth most to be pitied, right? If Jesus hasn't been raised and therefore we have no eternal hope, we are of all men to be most pitied. He says, if Jesus hasn't been raised, let's just eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Let's just live kind of a nihilistic life. Let's just live a life for the here and now because that's the only hope that we have. But Christ has been raised. Jesus has been raised and therefore our faith is not empty. Our faith is filled up to the fullness. It's filled up to the max because our faith is in a risen, triumphant Jesus Christ. Jesus has been risen. Therefore, we are not in our sins any longer. Isn't that amazing news? That we are not in our sins. He has taken us out of our sins. He has taken our sins away from us. He has buried them in the depths of the sea. Jesus has been raised. And so, of all men on the face of the earth, because Christ has been raised, we are of all people most to be envied because we have an eternal hope. And Christ has been raised. And therefore, let's not just eat and drink and just live for ourselves for the here and now. Let's live for something bigger. Let's live for eternity because Christ has been raised. In the book of Acts, the central theme in nearly every recorded sermon is that this Christ who was crucified has now risen from the dead. It defined their message. It defined their message. If Christ hadn't been raised, they wouldn't have had a message. It defined their message. The resurrection of Jesus vindicated every prophecy, everything Jesus ever said, every miracle he ever performed, every claim about Jesus. The resurrection vindicates all of this, which is why Tim Keller said something like this. I couldn't find the quote exactly. But he said, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, forget about every, th- every claim he ever made. Just go on with life as usual if he didn't rise from the dead. Don't believe and don't obey anything he said. If, however, Jesus has been raised from the dead, you must believe and obey everything he said. You can't toss anything out. C.S. Lewis, um, I believe is in his book on miracles, 
said in the light of the truth of the resurrection, quote, you must accept or reject the story. You must accept or reject the story. So let's look at the story. Here in John chapter 20, we see the disciples going from fear to joy when they encounter Jesus, right? They are gathered together in a place. Some of them, we don't know how many, but some of them were gathered together. There were some that weren't there because at least Thomas wasn't. They were gathered together and they were fearful. It says that they had the doors locked. They probably had the the shades pulled. They had the lights dim and they said, we got to be really, really quiet. Okay, because they were afraid. The Jews had just crucified Jesus, and no doubt they probably thought they were next. They thought, perhaps, probably, that the Jews were coming after them. They were hiding, and Jesus, while they are hiding, comes to them. I I love this. Jesus, in the midst of their greatest fears, Jesus comes to them. Jesus stood among them, and it says when they, when they saw that it was the Lord, they were glad. We know that it wasn't just a spirit. It wasn't just the spirit of Jesus that was standing before them or that was appearing before them, like some kind of Gnostic ideas. Luke's account says that Jesus, when he stood before them, said, touch me. See, it's me, right? A spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And later on in Luke's account, he says, give me something to eat. In other words, it was Jesus in the flesh, risen from the dead. And the disciples were very happy to see him. They were very glad when they saw it was him. Now, Thomas wasn't there when the other disciples saw Jesus. And so when they, when they passed the story on to Thomas... I mean, Thomas's response, I think, is, is very similar to the way that a lot of us would respond. We, we, we make fun of doubting Thomas. But if we had been there, I think, in the honesty of our hearts, at least some of us would say, I could see myself doing that. Right? Thomas wasn't there when the disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. Thomas says, no way. No way. Unless I see the holes in his hands and I see the, the, the hole in, the side of, in, in his side where he was thrust through with a spear, I will never believe. I will never believe. Eight days later, Jesus comes. The doors are locked again. I think this is amazing. The doors are locked. The doors are shut. Jesus just appears to them. I don't know, something with resurrection bodies. I don't know. He just comes through walls, I guess. But he appears to them and he says to Thomas, he looks at Thomas. He says, Thomas, come here. Look at the holes in my hands. Put your finger through them. Look at the, the, this hole in my side. Put your hand in it. And then just this tender, shepherdly, is that a word? Rebuke. Don't disbelieve. Believe. I don't think Jesus spoke sharply to him, but it certainly was a rebuke. But it's a loving rebuke. Don't disbelieve. Only believe. And Thomas responds, classic. He says, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. And Jesus, I love his response. This is so key for us. He says, you believe because you see. 
This next phrase, so important. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen. Blessed are those who have not seen me, Jesus is saying, in the flesh, standing before them. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed in me. Jesus, of course, is talking about seeing him in the flesh so we could, so people could touch him. There's only some people that have seen Jesus in the flesh, the apostles and It says up to 500 in the New Testament at the time after his resurrection, he appeared to different people. But millions and millions and millions and millions of other Christians who have believed in Jesus have never seen him in the flesh. They've never had the the possibility of putting their fingers through his nail holes. Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now there's a kind of seeing That isn't seeing with our physical eyes and seeing a physical Jesus, but it's a kind of seeing with the eyes of faith that I think when when, when Jesus talks about believing points us to that. Paul prays in Ephesians 1, he prays for the people of Ephesus that they would have the eyes of their understanding opened. Or I think the NIV might say the eyes of their hearts enlightened or the, the eyes of their hearts opened. Paul says elsewhere that Christians walk by faith and not by sight. We walk, he contrasts sight with seeing physical things and walking in the light of those and walking in the light of faith. We want to see with the eyes of faith. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they don't see Christ. But Jesus, when he awakens someone to the beauty of Christ. It says he, he speaks light into their hearts and allows them or gives them the grace to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus in John chapter 17. So this was on Thursday of Holy Week. Jo- Jesus is praying. It's, it's what's oftentimes called the high priestly prayer. And Jesus prays this. He says, Father, I don't only pray for these 12 are these that you've given me, but I also pray for all who would believe through their words. In other words, praying for you and I. Blessed are those who have not seen Jesus in the flesh and yet have believed in him. I want to ask a question. If God granted us the ability to see Jesus by faith today, see Jesus as risen from the dead, if he, if he gave us the grace to see afresh the risen Christ by faith, how would it help us? Isn't this what we really want to know on Easter Sunday? I mean, I love singing. I mean, just like, amen, this is so awesome. But it's like, how does this affect the way that I'm going to live, walk out of here and live in the light of Christ's resurrection? If God gave us the ability to see Christ by faith today, for the first time for some who have never trusted in Jesus, for many in just a fresh way, in a renewed way, Paul's praying in Ephesians 1 for believers that they would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened. If God enlightened the eyes of our hearts to see Christ today, how would it help us? In verses 19 to 22, Jesus gives 
three gifts to his disciples. He gives them three, three gifts. Jesus personally comes to his disciples and he gives them first the gift of peace. Then he gives them second the gift of his purpose. A purpose, a lifelong purpose. And third, he gives them the gift of his indwelling presence. If we could see Christ by faith today, we could walk out of here with a, with a new peace, with a peace, an overwhelming peace in Christ. We could walk out of here with a sense that we are living on a mission. We are living in Christ's purpose for us. And we could live with a new, amazing sense of Christ's indwelling presence by his spirit. Let's take these one at a time. First, Jesus gives the gift of his peace. The sweet peace that Jesus gives is unspeakable. We sang earlier about, I am no longer a slave to fear. So many are enslaved to fear. Fear about the future, fear about dying, fear about all kinds of things, fear about public speaking, all kinds of things, right? So many people are enslaved to all different kinds of fears. Jesus came to give peace. In verses 19 and 21, Jesus speaks these words, peace be with you. Peace be with you. He comes to them and he says, I'm giving you my peace. Here is my peace. Take my peace. Peace be with you. In the midst of their fears and anxieties, the disciples no doubt had uncertainty about the future. Jesus, the great shepherd, comes to his sheep and says, peace be with you. I wonder, do you ever have fear? Do you ever have uncertainty about the future? Probably. Probably everybody here has or does from time to time. Anxieties, sometimes just nagging anxiety, sometimes overwhelmed with anxiety. Jesus wants us to know his peace. I, I thought of two things that two two things that could have been going through the disciples' mind to which Jesus speaks peace to them. Jesus had just died. The disciples, it says, were afraid, probably at least in part, for their own lives. Jesus had been crucified. They thought he was still dead. They thought they were next on the list. The Jews would be coming for the followers of Jesus to snuff out this movement once and for all. Many people have a fear of death and dying. Many people do. There was a man years ago, his name was Ernest Becker. He won a Pulitzer Prize for his book, The Denial of Death. He was not a Christian. Here's what he stated in the thesis of his book. He says, the fear of death haunts the human being like nothing else. It is a mainspring of human activity, activity designed largely to avoid the finality of death, to overcome it by denying in some way that it is the final destiny for man. Now, we wouldn't agree with everything he said, but he does certainly affirm some things the Bible says. The Bible says that many because of the fear of death, are held enslaved. 
their entire lives. And unless there's something stronger than death, many remain enslaved until their dying breath. To his disciples who are struggling with fear, perhaps of their own lives being hunted down, Jesus speaks peace because there is something stronger than death. Jesus has defeated death. Jesus has risen. Which is why Paul can say, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Do you have that kind of confidence even in the face of death and danger? Do you? No human bravado will do. We need to have confidence in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To give us peace. Here's something else that came to mind. Here's possibly another fear that the disciples had. It could be that the disciples feared that God had abandoned them. They were following Jesus. Jesus had told them he was the Christ, the Messiah. They themselves believed that to some degree. And he was dead. Had God left them? Had God abandoned them? The apostle John, at least, was there at the scene when Jesus was crucified. He heard the words of Christ when Christ said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Had God abandoned them? Sometimes, I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like circumstances mock me, my circumstances. And even for just a moment or a little time, they cause me to question, where's God? Where is he? I'm not seeing him in the midst of this difficulty, in the midst of this struggle. And in the middle of the strongest storms of life, the risen Lord Jesus comes to his disciples and he speaks, peace be with you. And in the midst of our greatest difficulties and our greatest trials and our strongest storms we ever face, the risen good shepherd, Jesus, comes and he speaks, peace be with you. Notice what Jesus does after the first time he speaks peace. He shows them his hands, the nail marks in his hands. He shows them his side where he had been thrust through with the spear. Now, no doubt Jesus was doing this just to authenticate, hey, it's really me. I think there's something more to it. Jesus wants to show them. He says, I'm I'm speaking peace to you. Look. I had spikes driven through my hands. I was thrust through with a sword for your peace. Isaiah 53, 5 says, the chastisement that brought us peace was upon Christ. Jesus shows them his hand, shows them his side, and says, again, peace be with you. He wanted them to see his wounds. Amazing text that really connects this idea of peace, an amazing peace with the resurrection of Jesus, is Romans 4.25-5.1. through 5.1. These two verses are so important for us. It says that Jesus was delivered up for our sins 
and he was raised for our justification. And then the very next verse says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith in Jesus, we have faith, or excuse me, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was delivered up for our sins, right? He was hung on a tree for our sins. He was raised for our justification. And therefore, now we have peace through Jesus with God. Do you know what justification means? It's a big, it's a big theological word, but it's really important that we know what it means. Do you know what justification means? <clears throat> really want to urge you, hear me. Justification means acceptance with God, being right with God, being approved by God, approval before God on the basis of Jesus' death alone and his resurrection and on no other basis at all. 2 Corinthians 5 says, He became sin who knew no sin. Jesus never sinned, but he became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Justification means approval, acceptance. It means that you are counted righteous in God's sight because of what Jesus has done. His perfect righteousness and obedience has become yours through faith in him. I imagine, here's a picture that might help. When we believe in Christ, when you believe in Jesus, it is as though Jesus puts a white robe over you that covers all of your stains, all of your filth, all of your sin with his perfect white robe of righteousness so that now God views you as though you have lived a perfect life. I think that's good news. I really do. Have I convinced anyone else? Okay. All right. All of the enmity between you and God has been removed. All of the enmity because of your sin, because of your hostility against God, because of my hostility against God has been removed and you are now counted as perfectly righteous in God's sight. You might say, but listen, I know how yesterday was for me. I know, but do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe in Christ? You might say, listen, I just, I snapped this morning and I did some things I shouldn't have done. Okay, all right, repent of that. But do you believe in Christ? He was delivered up for your sins and he was raised for your justification. And through faith in him, you are justified before God. And because you're justified, you have peace with God. All of the enmity is gone. You have peace with God through Jesus Christ. To have peace with God means that God is now on your side. God is now and forever on your side. Nothing will or ever can change that. Paul says in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? Later he says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who's going to condemn? Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised. He is seated at the right hand of God and he intercedes for us. 
the peace that we have with God through Jesus Christ is totally secure because Christ has totally secured it. Jesus was abandoned on the cross for us and then he rose again so that we would never be abandoned by God. The riches of God's grace is amazing. Imagine a, uh, imagine a two-year-old child, okay? Um, he's playing with his truck, Tonka truck. I don't know if Tonka trucks are around anymore. But anyways, he's playing with his truck, and he's being kind of rough with it, and he breaks it. And this, this child, this Johnny, let's call him Johnny, he's crying and fussing and whining because he broke his truck, and he's yelling at Dad, Dad, come fix my truck. Can you please fix my truck? Dad walks in the room, says, Johnny, listen, you have a great uncle, Ernie, who just died, and guess what? You've inherited $10 million from him. What's that two-year-old child going to do? He's going to keep fussing about the truck. He's going to keep whining about the truck. He has no uh, cognitive faculties to even comprehend what $10 million is. Similarly, many Christians, we get stressed. We get so unsettled by our circumstances because we don't have a capacity to comprehend the immeasurable riches of God's grace toward us in Christ. We're just like that little boy. May God help us to see today the God of the universe has set his affection upon you in Christ. The God of the universe has favors you. He is using all of his omnipotence, all of his mighty power. It's aimed at you for your good. Jesus has risen from the dead and gives us his peace. Gift number two. Jesus not only gives us peace, but he gives or gives his disciples peace and and us, but he gives them his purpose. He gives them his purpose. Verse 21, Jesus says, as the father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Jesus says to these, this little band of brothers gathered together, this little band of believers, says, as the Father sent me, even so I am now sending you. This is John's version of the Great Commission. Um, Matthew 28 says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus says this, therefore go, therefore I'm sending you out. But John's version is just simply, as the Father sent me, even so I send you. But here's what happens. Jesus, because of his resurrection, has been given all authority in heaven and on earth by the Father. And what Jesus does with that authority is he gathers his people together and says, I'm sending you out. I'm sending you out. You guys know what a, a deputy is? Kids ever heard of like a deputy, like a sheriff, a sheriff's deputy? A deputy is someone who's empowered to act as a substitute of of those uh, over them, those above them. So a sheriff has a deputy who's who's able to act on his behalf. 
Um, he's empowered to do that. He's authorized to do that. By virtue of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he, has, he was given authority from the Father. He's taken that authority and he's deputized you and I, every believer in Christ, he's deputized us as ambassadors to continue his purpose in the world. He's given us a badge, so to speak. He said, go. He said, I'm sending you out into the world as the Father sent me. What is the purpose of Christ in the world? Lots of confusion, perhaps, on this, but it doesn't need to be confusing. John 3, 16 and 17 is very clear for us. For God so loved the world, right? The Father so loved the world that he gave His one and only son. He sent his son into the world. So that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. The next verse says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So here's Jesus. Because the father loved the world so much, he sent Jesus into the world. Because Jesus loves the world so much, he sends you and me. He just sends us into the world. You don't have to be a missionary or move overseas to engage in this purpose, right? Oftentimes, Matthew 28 or John 20, 21 is spoken of almost exclusively to, to people who get paid for ministry or to missionaries who go overseas. But this is spoken to his disciples directly and you and I indirectly but very clearly. So whether you are a bricklayer or a mother who takes the hardest job in the world, stays home with kids, if you are a programmer or an insurance guy or gal, if you're a scientist or a musician or a veterinarian, if you're an overseas missionary, if you're a receptionist, If you're retired from a vocational job, if you're young, if you're old, if you're still in school, if you're in high school, if you're in grade school, if you are in college, whatever place you find yourself in life, you are called to be sent into the world by Jesus, just as the Father sent Jesus into the world. Jesus is giving you his purpose. What you do for a job is merely a platform or a vehicle through which Jesus is sending you into the world as the Father sent him. Now, isn't it nice to know why we're here? Isn't it nice to know that there is a purpose for which we take up space on planet Earth? And it is not, it's also freeing to think and to know it's not just about expanding my own personal kingdom. Something bigger than that, something that goes beyond that. At the end of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, um, the very last verse, 1 Corinthians 15 is all about the resurrection of Jesus and our resurrection because we believe in him. At the end, the very last verse says, therefore, brothers, be immovable, be steadfast, always abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that your work or that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Our children need to know 
even at a young age, they need to have this spoken into them. As the Father sent Jesus into the world, Jesus is sending us as a family and each one of us individually into the world. Kids, how many of you have thought, I mean, at a pretty young age, I thought this. So how many of you have thought, when I grow up, I want to blank? Only two? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, until I was seventh grade, I was sure I was going to be in the NBA. Some, I mean, some jerk just, he, he, he burst my bubble and said, hey, listen, only one in a million get, make it. I was like, okay, fine. I'm joking. But you're thinking about that at a young age. Most of us have and do. Whatever you do, kids, whatever you do, whether you are a teacher or scientist or a doctor or a musician or an actor, whatever you do, God is putting you there to use that as a platform to make Jesus known in the world. Jesus has risen from the dead and he gives us his purpose. Number three, gift number three. Jesus gives his disciples and he gives to you and I his indwelling presence. This is perhaps the gift of all gifts. In verse 21, it says, excuse me, verse 22 it says, Jesus breathed on them. And then he said, receive the Holy Spirit. I, I just was so moved last night. I just, I never really connected it like this. But at the intensely personal gift this is from Jesus to his disciples and to you and I. He breathes on them. And says, receive the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> I, think that, I think Jesus breathing on them was a more of a prophetic act. Signifying what would soon happen. I think it was about 50 days later. 120 of Jesus' followers were in a place called an upper room. And they were gathered together and they were praying and they were seeking the Lord. And it was the day of Pentecost. And all of a sudden, they heard this, this sound from heaven like a mighty rushing wind. I, I don't know if there's any connection here, but I thought Jesus breathed on them. Acts 2, there's, there's wind from heaven. There was a sound like a mighty rushing wind from heaven. And it filled the entire place where they were gathered. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, verses 32 to 33, this is Peter's sermon. Here's what he says. Notice the connection here between Jesus' resurrection and exaltation and the outpouring of the Spirit. It says, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. We've all seen it. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. 
So Jesus was raised. He was exalted to God's right hand. He received from the Father the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, thank you very much. And he poured him out upon his people in Acts chapter 2. Amazing. Amazing. The Holy Spirit has been given to Christians as the personal presence of Jesus to give us, I mean, to give us an experience of the peace we talked about earlier and to give us the power that we need to carry out his purpose. That's why I say this is like the gift of gifts. I mean, this is God coming to us and dwelling within us to help us to know deeply and experientially this peace and this salvation and also to empower us with supernatural strength to carry out the purpose of Jesus. The presence of the Spirit is, has been given to us as an experience of Christ's peace. I, we sang the song about not being a slave of fear, but being a child of God. I love in, in John 14, when Jesus says to his disciples, he says, I'm not going to leave you as an orphan, but I'm going to come to you. Right? And he's talking about the Holy Spirit. He's saying right before that, he talks about giving the helper, the Holy Spirit. And then he says, I'm not going to leave you as an orphan. I am going to come to you. Galatians chapter four, Paul prays or Paul says that um, through faith in Jesus Christ, we have been given the spirit of sonship. We've been given the spirit of adoption. Almost the same thing in Romans 8, where it says we have not been given, the, uh, we've not been given a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but we've been given, given the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. So the Holy Spirit's given as a gift from Jesus to know experientially this peace. We know how this works. You can be a Christian with sound orthodox belief, right? You can, you can, you can believe all the right doctrines <clears throat> and know little to nothing of the true peace of Christ. So it's more than just abstract thoughts. It has to be true. It has to be based on truth. But Holy Spirit takes that truth and makes it real in us. I love again how it says in Romans 8, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. He bears witness with us in a deeply personal and powerful way that we belong to God. The presence of the Spirit is also power to live out Christ's purpose. Acts 1.8 says, Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will bear witness of me in all the world. So Jesus, risen from the dead, gives you his indwelling presence by the Spirit. The last words that Jesus spoke in, in Matthew 28 was, right, the, the Great Commission. Then he says, and I'm going to be with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus is with us. His presence is with us. He is with us by his Spirit. This amazing gift given by the risen Christ. The resurrection, as I said at the beginning, changes everything. But Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Changes everything for those who have believed. Jesus today presents himself 
Jesus today presents himself to you and I by his word and his spirit as alive from the dead. And Jesus would say to us, like he said to Thomas, don't disbelieve. Don't say, well, if I see some spectacular miracle or if I, you know, whatever, if, if this happens, then I'll believe. Otherwise, I'll never believe. Jesus says to us, don't disbelieve, but believe. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Tim Keller says the resurrection was God's way of stamping paid in full right across history so that nobody could miss it. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. The resurrection of Jesus vindicated every work, every claim, every teaching, every prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Lord. He is the King. He is our good shepherd. He is the resurrection and the life. He is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. That is Jesus. That is our Lord. And for every person who confesses, Jesus is Lord. And believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. You will receive peace. His purpose and his presence forever. Let's pray. Oh, Father of glory. I pray that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ. I pray that you'd open up the eyes of our hearts, that we would know what is the hope to which you have called us. What are the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe according to the working of your great might, that you worked in Christ when you raised him from the dead and seated him at your right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and power and authority and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And Father, you've put all things under the feet of Christ and you have given him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Please stand. We're going to close with a song this morning before we're dismissed.